welcome to the first season, second episode of Dog-Eared Nightmares. My guest is Johnny Compton, whose most recent release is The Spite House from Tor Nightfire. You might say, LP, that book just came out. How can it be dog-eared? To that, I say, I stole an advanced review copy of this book from Agatha of She Wore Black, so I actually read it a long time ago. We talk about Johnny being a horror guy who knows the difference between Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and 4. We talk about writing short and long fiction and about where the idea for the Spite House originated. We also tease Johnny's next novel, but don't worry, there's plenty of time to dog-ear the pages of the Spite House between now and then. All right. I am here with Johnny Compton. This is episode two of Dog-Eared Nightmares, and we are here to talk about the Spite House. And I've already promised to him that I won't make him repeat what a Spite House is or explain it. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I actually enjoyed it. I just had to not explain it completely or necessarily, but I, I was at a, an event yesterday at a Barnes & Noble question comes up it always comes up but i'm always eager to like talk about it i don't i don't mind if you're listening at the same time i do appreciate it if you're listening to this you know what a spite house is you're aware of this book um (laughs) it blew up it's been out for several months now um i stole agatha andrews copy last year so i read this i believe in october so for Mm -hmm. me this is a dog-eared nightmare I, i read it um six or seven months ago at this point and it had its big release it was what february i believe yes yes february it was a nightworms books book so congrats on that thank you how tiring was it to sign that many stickers man that was my first experience with signing anything and i mean this i'm a debut author so this is all new stuff to me and so i i don't know if this is the case but i'm presuming i guess they send you more stickers than they need yes just to you know just in case that way they can filter out the the ones that where it's obvious you didn't you didn't land the signature very well um so i wasn't thinking about that until i got it so i was already thinking like man there's a lot and then you see it and you're just like wait a minute this is this is like at least double it felt like what what i thought it was gonna be um but it was great um and and uh yeah that that whole experience was was fun that was before i realized that i guess sharpies are kind of the industry standard for signatures which i would have not anticipated so i was signing with my my lovely uh pen that i bought for the specific occasion but since then i've kind of learned although i still like to sign with the pen when it comes to the uh the book plates i have my signed copy right here and i was also in a nightworms last year and i think it it took me hours like multiple days it wasn't just to sit and just get through it it took multiple days to get through it all yeah I, I designated like different times of day to like hit a benchmark and like kind of organized it that way. Very structured, like, okay, you got to get through X number in the morning, X number at noon, X number in the evening. And that should take you X number of days if you stay on schedule like that. So yeah, it was, it was a whole process to do that, but I was, I was very grateful for it, but it was very, it was a, it made everything else seem easier by comparison. Anytime I've had to sign like 20 books, it's like, Oh yeah, 20. Okay. That's, easy that's also where my co-workers discovered i'm a horror writer because i've kept that under wraps but i was signing 
um, stickers over lunch when one of them walked in. <clears throat> Within two weeks, um, I had them coming in like with my short story collections asking me to sign them. So that's, oh, that's cool. interesting. Um, <laughs> so Johnny, I've seen you talk about Spite House at several events at this point. Um, kind of had personal conversations with you here and there. And I just get the sense that you're a horror guy. Yes, very much so. Like you can tell the difference between Nightmare on Elm Street 2 versus 3. To me, it all just blends together. I couldn't tell you who's in 1, what death scene happened in 3 versus 4, but you seem like you're a person that knows your stuff. Yeah, I I, I like to think so, at least on that on that level. Like I, I'm, It's funny you mentioned that because I, I was always more of a Nightmare on Elm Street kid than a Friday the 13th kid, which was a weird kind of a either or growing up for me at least it's like which one do you like more freddy or jason i was way more of a freddy guy so yeah i definitely know the differences one two three four then after that you kind of don't really have to bother with it but um i mean really arguably even three but four has a couple of pretty wild out death scenes that's that are... that's what i was talking about you like three and four i don't know i have no idea i've, I've seen them yeah uh, but if, can you talk about your relationship to horror? Did it start with movies? Did it start with books? Kind of what made you into a horror guy? Oh, man, it, it started when I was very, very shockingly young, five years old, kindergarten class. Um, my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Nina, played uh, a record in the class, old phonograph of The Golden Arm, which is a classic old school ghost story Um rising from the grave to reclaim something that's been stolen from you that should have been buried with you. And I heard that and I immediately was just captivated. I mean, that, that is a, a, a life-changing moment, strangely enough, at five years old. Um, but I immediately, I was just like, this is amazing. I'm terrified. I also want to do this to other people at some point. I, I just knew it then. And from there, I, I mean, of the many things that I was kind of obsessed with as a kid, like a lot of other boys, you know, like dinosaurs and certain sports and, you know, all the all the conventional stuff. Right. Uh, but I was also like just heavily, heavily into ghost stories and monsters and creatures of myth and legend and lore that were all kind of spooky and intimidating. And anything I was really initially, although I did read um, my share of short stories and fiction and, and ghost um, or uh, excuse me, uh, horror books, some appropriate for my age and some not. Um I was also really captivated by supposedly true hauntings. I would read anything that had to do with any kind of ghost lore, um, monster lore, uh, anything remotely associated with that. I would check out the same books over and over again at the school library that contained that. And the librarian said, don't you want to, you know, look at anything else? Maybe. And I was like, you guys got like these, I don't know, same seven or eight that I love. I'm just going to keep going back through these until you give me, uh, some more in this same category so it, it started very early with me and from there just kind of ballooned the movies and, and everything else um to what it is today right i seek out horror in every possible medium um i watch horror movies still i love going to the theater i love watching horror movies i still haven't seen evil dead rise yet actually i'm thinking about doing that tomorrow um horror novels and, and short stories obviously huge fan still uh anything that i can come across online on uh, like youtube about lore or ghost stories whether they are supposed to be true or very blatantly false etc 
I love watching that. Um, old school stuff. I'm, I'm catching up on stuff still to this day. So yeah, I'm, I'm just through and through. I like a lot of other things, but I mean, horror is kind of home base for me. So what were some of your formative books? You said that some were not age appropriate for me. That was um, Carrie, I think at age nine, mm. if I remember correctly, I was also reading Goosebumps and Fear Street at the same time. I was reading, you know, Stephen King and Dean Koontz and all that. What were your formative books? And so the, the one that jumps to mind immediately, there's a anthology called Shudders. And it's very much marketed as like, hey, this is appropriate for kids of a certain age. It wasn't until I got older that I realized this is actually not not so. Um, and so it, uh, it has, for instance, one of my favorite short stories still of all time called Sweets for the Sweet. I believe it's sweets for the sweet, not sweets to the sweet. Then, you know, correct me if I'm, uh, if you're out there listening, correct me if I'm, I'm slightly off with that. But it's written by Robert Block, who is the author of Psycho. So that kind of shows you that this is already, this is actually not a children's horror anthology, even though it was in my school library at the time and was, you know, you look at the cover and everything and it almost looks like one of those, uh, it's like a cross between like a Scooby-Doo house in the background and like kind of the, kind of vaguely spooky vibe of those old school covers for Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those books, but the the drawn imagery and it's just these, the the color and everything looks very cold and mysterious. And then you open it up and it's got Sweets to the Sweet in there by Robert Block, which has one of the most um, graphic without being graphic endings that is fantastic. I'm not going to spoil because I really, I, I always encourage people to read that story. It's It's amazing. Um, and it, it was actually adapted for a Hammer Horror, I believe it was Hammer Horror or Amicus Horror, I can't remember which one, but an old British horror movie that um, starred uh, Christopher Lee, or uh, Christopher Lee, rather, sorry, Christopher Lee in a, in that particular adaptation in an anthology film. But it's just a, a gut punch. And I remember reading that. And then from there, it was kind of steamrolling. Um the monkey's paws in that same anthology. And that's where I realized that the monkey's paw, again, it was something I, I, I feel like I recall hearing or seeing an adaptation of it. That was slightly less gruesome than the implied graphic violence that's in the monkey's paw with relation to when she wishes for her son to come back to life from the industrial accident. And you understand reading the book, like, Oh no, this guy's like going to be a mess. This is not good. And um, you don't want to, you don't want to, get the description, but you can already picture it in your mind. And so that was a big deal for me. It has several others. H.R. Wakefield, I believe, is the author of one called Used Car that has a, a reenactment of, you know, it's, it's a car haunted by some people who were murdered by gangsters in a, like, scene of, like, uh, old school classic gang violence shooting people in the back of a car. And it's like, this is, like, way heavier than, you know, um, not that there's anything wrong with goosebumps or anything. Like you said, the, the stuff that's age appropriate, but it was just way heavier and then I realized, and I wrote that when I was in second grade, I think I was about seven years old, seven or eight years old at the most. Um, so that was it. And then eventually I got to the Stephen King. I got to, um, you know, I read Night Shift pretty early on. That was on the, the shelf at my, my, uh, in my house. My mom had a copy. So um, pulled that down, read that one day and was like, oh, this is okay. We're, we're, we're escalating a little bit here. Um, reading Amityville Horror, probably a little too young. And that was a, a book that, um, when I stumbled on the books in the freezer podcast, I, I didn't watch friends very much when it was on, but when they explained what books in the freezer meant and like putting the book in the freezer, cause it's so scary. I was like, Oh, I can relate to this. Cause when I read Amityville horror, I used to take it out to the shed at night 
um so it wouldn't be in the house because I, I was like this book is, is, is scaring me so much and obviously nowadays we know it's it's nonsense but back then i was reading i was like this thing is so scary I'm, I'm i have to take it outside i feel like the book itself is an issue and then i would just go in the morning get it from the shed read it until nightfall and then put it back in the shed where i felt like that was safer so those are the books that come to mind when i think of stuff that maybe i was reading um that that were really important to me and that i was probably reading a little bit early by uh, a lot of standards maybe all right, off the cuff. Business idea for you. Books in the shed. <laughs> I mean, that was that's a legit thing. I remember doing that. And uh it's I don't think my parents ever understood what, what was happening. Like while I was going out to the shed every night and then just doing this. And it was about I mean, I, I ran through that book so fast. So I think it's only about a week or so of, of reading that. But yeah, I mean I I couldn't stand the idea of that book even being not just in my room, but in my house. I was just like, this is way too evil to be here. So yeah, books in the shed. I need to look for that as a, a business idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're right. So you have a pretty extensive catalog prior to the Spite House. It's all kind of short fiction. Um, we've both been on No Sleep, um, mm -hmm. but you have done something I've never been able to do. That's get on Pseudopod. So congrats on that. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I mean, that, that was really big for me. My One of my earliest uh, important sales went to Pseudopod. And I kind of, you know, you need those little benchmarks along the way. And in some respects, Pseudopod um, helped the Spite House happen because I sold a story to them in, uh, I think it was September of 2019, Um that was i hadn't had a short story sale for years and i felt like i was writing some really good stuff and i couldn't get a sale and then i, I sold to pseudopod that particular story that actually ended up being a, on the preliminary ballot for the stoker and um that was like the first one i sold in years and i i just gotten to a point where i was kind of like you know what maybe maybe this writing thing i've, I've run its course you know like I'll, I'll write some stuff here and there but um, because I'm, I'm not gonna be able to turn it off but i was thinking you know maybe I, I'm, I'm not sure how much of this i'm gonna be sharing or submitting so much of just writing for myself, maybe. Um, because if I, I can't determine, I felt like I couldn't determine how good my work was because I felt like I'm hitting this weird lull where I'm writing the best stories I've ever written and I can't sell them. So maybe I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, so anyway, not to sidetrack the the question you were going to ask, but Pseudopod is, is very important to me. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have been published there a few times. So as you know, a, a producer of short fiction, did you have a novel length story kind of inside you at all times was it something you've been carrying with you or was that kind of a major tra transition um going from short story to a novel length no it was a it was something i definitely had in me for for a long time um i actually wrote my first finished novel which will never see the light of day but i wrote that in 2002 i think i finished it 2002 or 2003 somewhere in that range um and it's terrible <laughs> but uh it was the first one that i i really I, I i had an idea that started as a short story and i realized that this I'm, I'm adding things to it that i need to just go ahead and make this a novel and at the time i was i was broke um i've, I've never been poor but i have been broke there's a big difference and <laughs> i was broke of my own stupidity and uh i didn't have a computer and so i wrote the first twenty thousand or so words of that by hand in in a notebook because I always had notebooks on me because I, I used to be an aspiring rapper. So I would always have a notebook on me any, anyway. And I wrote the first 20,000 words of that novel by hand before I finally got, um, I think my brother was getting rid of his old computer, got himself a new one, 
And so I was like, Hey, if you're going to get rid of that, can I just have it? And he was like, well, it doesn't, you know, you can't get internet or anything with it. It's very old. And I was like, man, I just, I just want something to write with. I'm basically looking for a word processor essentially. And uh, he's like, okay, sure. I mean, like it'll do that for you as long as you don't have any other expectations. So I had this old, very old computer uh, by that standard at the time, but it, it ran Microsoft word. It let me get through the rest of the book. Um, and then I got done with it and I started rereading it and rewriting it, et cetera. And I was like, I'm actually not happy with this. I don't think it, it works in a lot of different places. And so I never even submitted it anywhere, but from there, I, I'd started working on in, in between short stories or amidst the short stories, I started working on other novel ideas and I had, I had that in me. The spite house is just the first one that I finished since then. Any progress on your screenplay Reaper? <laughs> this is like a, a Nardwar interview or something now. I'm like, I'm like, how did you know about Reaper? Wait, what, what did I mention that somewhere? It's on your website. It's on the website. Oh, that's that's a good that's a good find. Oh man, no. Reaper's another one that uh <laughs> I uh I wrote it. I actually finished that one. I wrote it ages ago. I mean, when I first started writing and, and trying to write seriously, I wanted to write screenplays. Um, in college, I started doing that. I, I, I wrote, I tried to do a count one day. I wrote literally like 12 finished screenplays. And I, I think one is maybe salvageable, <laughs> but I, I was finishing stuff. Uh, Reaper is, is a slasher and it's um, pretty bad. It was, it was it was pretty bad. It was like at, at the height of the slasher kind of craze that that scream kicked off, and I was really into slasher movies at the time. And uh, it's it's pretty terrible. Um, but I haven't tried to to go back in and do any kind of reclamation with it. So who knows? I actually haven't reread it in years and years and years. And it's on my computer somewhere around here, in one of my drives or something. So who knows? Maybe I'll go back, and it won't be as bad as I, I recall it being. But me, me and a buddy of mine still make jokes about reaper because it has a couple of uh very bad lines of dialogue that but and he would read all my stuff my my, my closest friend jeff and uh, it has a couple of lines of dialogue where even at the time when he was trying to be like kind of a, a kid gloves not quite kid gloves but you know more constructive even when stuff wasn't maybe that great even back then he was like man this line is not good and it also like is a super dead giveaway of who the mystery killer is supposed to be and i was like yeah i kind of knew when i wrote that but you know you're trying to power through stuff i guess back then and think maybe this is better than i think it is and no it it wasn't the killer had an interesting name right yeah it was it was literally a uh, anku or I don't, I don't even know that if that's how you pronounce it but it's a-n-k-o-u which is a uh I think it's a uh, it's like an old school British Isles version of the Grim Reaper, hmm. um, and uh, I mean this would have been like circa two thousand four, two thousand three, maybe or so. And so back then it was still early enough in the internet when you'd stumble across stuff and think maybe I found something that nobody else has heard of before. Like literally now, if you look at the word Anku, there, there's like a whole Wikipedia page for it. I think there's like you could probably find like fifty different YouTube videos you know, either mentioning it or directly devoted to it. Um, but back then it was like, man, like, oh, like there's this own, like this thing that nobody's ever heard of and I can make it the character's name, but then it's like a little Easter egg. And yeah, it's it's super duper on the nose and a really terrible idea. <laughs> oh man. So the Spite House, as you mentioned, that is your first novel, HWA Active Members, hint, hint. That's his first novel. <laughs> 
Um, how long were you carrying that idea inside of you? Was it the actual, um, and I think I've heard you discuss this at other places that you kind of realized that the Spite House as a setting hasn't really been done before. So was it the setting first and then the story? Was it the story and then the setting? It was, it was mostly the story and then the setting and then the rest of the story, if that kind of makes sense. But um, some of the initial curse elements that are in the story that are involved and the family background for my main characters and the family background for my main villain. Um, actually, the, the background for the main villain is the first thing I came up with ages ago. And that whole, uh, my main villain character named Eunice, early in the book, she describes this moment that she has with her aunt where she realizes my family's cursed and, and this horrible death happens that she's present for as a child. I had that idea. I mean, that that's the first idea I had about this is related to this. And that, that came to me ages and ages ago, it feels like now. I mean, that, that's easily more than a decade ago that I had that idea. Hell, probably longer than that. I think it was probably about 15 years ago or so because I was at least in my 20s. Um, and so then from there, I started picking up other things and I had this haunted, this whole haunted house, but haunted families, haunted people story. And uh, I'd had it kind of in my head, but hauntings, um, you know, it, you, you want to, part of the the whole drawback or, or, or roadblock I had mentally for writing um, a complete novel was the idea of like, I'm going to be a debut author. It's got to be something that's, that's really got to jump off the page and be a, a, a premise that's going to be different. And as much as I liked what I had, I didn't think it was going to be from a, just a, a pure, like kind of haunted house, haunted people standpoint enough to get people's attention. I wasn't uh, confident about that yet. So then the, uh, the spite house came in. And so then once the spite house came in as a setting, then I was like, okay, how do you, it needs its own backstory. So how do you incorporate, incorporate that as well with, with what already exists. And so then it all kind of came together from there. I appreciate, um, yeah, I, I consume a lot of horror like you do and horror is, it's such a gamut now, like probably growing up horror felt like whatever Stephen King or Dean Koontz or a few other authors, John Saul, Robert McCammon produced, which the topics, even though the stories could be pretty divergent, it was still, I would say within a pretty reliable framework but now horror is just this huge gamut of things um there's kind of a resurgence of epistolary horror there's uh, just um it feels like it's so big now it encompasses so much that it's very refreshing just to have a ghost story yeah i i agree like you can kind of just kind of go classic straightforward ghost story like you said i feel like there was a I know I grew up with with you know the the King Coons like you mentioned McCammon even, um, you know just I guess a handful of others but there was there were a lot of times where you could you could kind of for what I, when I grew up at the time because I, I I missed a lot of the, the I missed all of the seventies obviously and by the time I was I was starting to read stuff would have been the you know eighties and primarily as an adult it would have been the nineties and by then it did kind of feel like there was a a desire to try to write something that broke convention to an to a to an extent that um like you say the 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 horror now where you can just have a ghost story or a pistolary story 
and it, it feels refreshing versus at the time um when i was reading a lot of stuff it just felt like there was a, a an almost desperation to to write anything other than a ghost story mm. and you know who doesn't love a good old-fashioned classic ghost story but i can at the same time kind of understand if i mean i would imagine if you are stephen king and you're like i'm gonna write something like the tommy knockers or something instead mm. now like I, I wrote my big vampire novel that's a very classic straightforward vampire novel i wrote salem's lot and it's updated to invade this town in america but it's still got very kind of classic uh for for the the time period classic vampires that you would expect and you know i wrote that and i wrote my psychic powers person and i wrote my ghost story with the shining and i've maybe written some you know several sh short stories and all these other things and so at a certain point you're like okay what can i do to to do something else to do anything else and especially if you're you know, you maybe you're you're thinking your audience is expecting something else of you, and your you know critics are maybe expecting something else of you, or what have you. Um, and like you said, I think that now horror has come to a, an incredibly healthy place where you can just have something um, more straightforward and kind of just classic, and you you tell it in a different fashion, but you don't have to feel like if you want to do something completely abnormal, you can. But you don't have to feel the pressure of like, this has to be so abnormal to just get anybody's attention that I can't just kind of write what I feel or what's in my, you know, not to say that anybody, you know, I don't, I don't know. For all I know, they, they were writing exactly what they feel, but there definitely does seem to be, I know, you know, I'm a huge King fan. I followed a lot of his work and there does seem to be a transition period though when you look at it and it's, you know, there's a big difference between something like Cujo, which is just, what if I write a killer dog story? And then something like Dreamcatcher that's like, well, what if I kind of use the concept of a Dreamcatcher to and, and transform that into, you know, like this story about alien slugs and, and all this other stuff. Um, and, you know, you get into appropriation and, and cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. all kind of other discussions with that. But I feel like that's what kind of ends up, you, you end up becoming more susceptible to potentially if you're, if you're looking at things from the perspective of, well, I got, I got to try to mash up a bunch of different things here to make it seem fresh. Cause I'm, I'm past my just killer dog, killer psychic girl, killer vampires swarming a town phase. And people are expecting me to go into an entirely different, huge new direction. I've, I've already wrote misery about the killer crazy fan. I've already wrote all these things that were a lot more direct and straightforward and amazing and all the classics. And now people feel like I, I maybe have got to do something beyond extraordinary. And instead of being able to just, comfortably write something that seems conventional on the surface but if it's told well who cares if it's conventional dreamcatcher had the toilet right that was the toilet yes. one yeah that's about yeah. all i remember from it <laughs> all right i'm just gonna compliment you right now so i did mm -hmm. this in the last episode um, with celso just just take the compliments i'm just gonna compliment you right now one thing you do really well and i feel like is missing in a lot of the books that i read that i end up either dnfing or um, just coming away with like a, a meh kind of response. You don't care enough about the characters so that when bad things happen, it's meaningful. And mm -hmm. you, you said this, um, you know, there's urgency from the first few pages, but we're still getting bits and pieces um, about this father and his two daughters. We know something happened with one of the daughters that you, you give us little morsels like over time 
And, but just that, that dynamic, that um, sense of desperation and as a father of a daughter, you know, two kids, but primarily thinking about my relationship with my daughter, you would do anything to protect your daughters, including take an eccentric older woman up on her offer to stay in a likely haunted spite house. So had we not been privy to that relationship and his sense of um, desperation and, and need to protect his daughters, it might not have been as meaningful when the bad stuff starts to happen. So kudos for that. I hope, you know, as, and we're going to talk about writing, we're going to talk about writing advice. I'll just drop in this nugget right here that, you know, make the, the story matters to the extent that people care about your characters and care doesn't have to mean like there are many characters I hate, but I'm interested in them. I still want to know about their journey. So take the time to invest in your characters and it will make your story stronger. So, and kudos to you for doing that. I do want to pivot now and uh, just talk about your path to publication with Spite House, did you have it out in multiple places? I know you have an agent. Did the agent come first? Did the the, the deal with Tor Nightfire come first? Just walk us through that process. Sure. I got the agent first. I subscribe, and this is not a plug, obviously, but I, sub I subscribe to Duotrope, um, which is uh, one of you know several different services you can find um, online that help you find agents, publishers, um, magazines that want to, you know, that are, that have an open call, et cetera. Um, and Duotrope is one of the ones that charges a fee. It's, it's, to me, it's nominal, but everybody's got a different price setting. So, you know, you make your own decisions there. I think it's five bucks a month. Um, but anyway, I, I went there and did a search for agents and put it in alphabetical order and agents that were looking for horror novels and had, that they were open to it. And went through it, found my, uh, you know, submitted to several different agents, had some people respond, um, you know, just hopeful. My agent put in, put me on a Zoom call, made an offer pretty much from the first meeting I had with them. Uh, so went from there, polished up the, the novel for submission, submitted it to multiple outlets and tour night fire, um, became, you know, they, they were the one that all factors considered we we thought would be the the best relationship and so that was that was the path it's a kind of a conventional you know query letter um you know send me a partial send me the full so on and so forth for the agent he submits or he or she submits to um publishers and and you know that that was kind of it i didn't have the uh some of the same experience and hustle that i think other people are able to enrich themselves with, honestly, if, if you're able to go through that and kind of get some insight into publication, kind of from a, a DIY standpoint that came to me a little bit later from people I, I spoke to that had gone through more of that. And that gives me now, I, I feel like a lot more com comfortability with discussing things that are coming up as I, you know, try to build a career out of this as opposed to just the, the one book. So you were a uh, a lifelong consumer of horror. We established that five years old. He said, five years old. Five years old. Was there something missing? Like at at what point did you start producing horror? And was it for your own entertainment, or 
Was it because there was a voice missing that you thought, you know, you had access to and, and maybe you could articulate some stories from a perspective that hadn't been um, touched yet? Man, um, great question. Great question. So like my, my first attempts at writing horror short fiction came in fifth grade. And so I wasn't thinking about anything um, uh, grandiose or mm -hmm. from any kind of major perspectives of what, what kind of voice I have or anything. I was just, that, it was, it was for me and for my friends, you know, and, and people I knew in school and trying to write something that I thought would be cool and interesting. Um, but then when I started taking it seriously, like in, in college and really wanting to actually write, um, even there, I, I did feel like there were angles and, and perspectives. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black male. I felt like there were angles and perspectives that I could write that wouldn't necessarily, um, that, that didn't necessarily, that, that weren't prevalent for sure. I don't want to say they didn't exist because I always feel like you're dismissing pioneers if you say something didn't exist, especially if somebody was out there and, and I, I wasn't reading everything. I wasn't aware of everything. So if somebody was out there and they, I just am not aware of it, you the last thing I want to say is like, oh, like this didn't exist. And somebody's able to say, actually, no, like, what about this author, this author, this author? And I know for a fact that, like, for instance, one of my favorites, Tanana Ribdu, when, you know, the, I, I believe her first The Between came out in 95, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I know she was out there and I just hadn't read it until after um, I started trying to write. But I I, I was aware that I, I could maybe have a perspective and, and try to write certain types of stories that, I thought would be fun and thought would be interesting. Um, and so I, I, I approached it from that perspective of, I think I have something to offer that is not out there, but at the same time is really going to be engaging and be for myself and for a specific audience, but also in the same way for everyone, if that makes sense, just in everybody's going to be able to take something different out of it. Some people are going to be able to take more. Some people might take almost as much, but just in a different way and so on and so forth from the stories. And, you know, I think that that's applicable no matter what you write, really, and the, 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 whatever, what your approach is. Kind of like you mentioned earlier with the Spite House, you're a father um, of daughters or of a daughter. And so you you are able to draw something from that that even me as the writer, you know, I don't have any children at all, much less a daughter. Um, so I might not even get get as much out of it or in the same way as, as you, you're getting out of it from that perspective. So... I think that's applicable to every everything you write. And so just kind of embracing that idea and that I'll be able to do that was was something that was in my mind um, at the time when I really started taking it seriously. So I actually read the between this year, like just a couple mm. of months ago, because like you said, there are pioneers. We're all, all standing on the shoulders of the people that have come before us. So I think we owe it, you know, um, if it's something that wasn't kind of on our radar back when we were getting started, um, there might have been a reason for that because I don't remember seeing her books on a shelf when I went shopping. Um, but now, you know, I'm kind of going back, finding out um, what was valuable out there that I missed. So, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it was really well done. I'm very excited about this part. Um, we have our second sponsor yeah. and Johnny Compton has agreed to read the ad for us. So take it away, Johnny. Sure. <clears throat> Dog-Eared Nightmares would like to thank our latest sponsor, Short by Comparison. You know, being an extremely tall man has its, its advantages. I can dust the ceiling fan without a stool. That's actually the one thing I can think of at the moment. But 
it isn't always ideal when you're fresh in the dating world. I've learned any profile picture on a dating app needs to have a two-liter soda in the frame for reference. Sometimes that isn't enough. First dates can be awkward, but they don't have to be. Short by comparison is the service for extremely tall men. They will send men four to six inches taller than you to stand or sit near you during your date, making you seem, you guessed it, short by comparison. On subsequent dates, the men are incrementally shorter, helping your date adjust to your extremely tall height over time. Disclaimer, this is for extremely tall men, not tall men. A tall man will seem short in general, not short by comparison. Please use caution when contacting our service. Thank you. Is any of that true for you? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I don't. I I never really know how tall I am until like I take pictures and then and then I'm like reminded, like, oh man, I I guess I kind of am abnormally tall. I've read before that I, I guess I qualify for like the 99th percentile well, oh, wow. totally the 99 percent of the population i guess and i'm 6'4 I'm bordering i guess 6'5 ish um but i you know i, I played basketball not very well at all but played basketball in high school so i'd hang out with other guys that were six foot or above or so and then you go places and you know plan games and tournaments or whatever and there's guys that are like six eight six nine six ten so to me those were like the guys that was like oh those are the giants and then as I like to say, I'm, I'm told by real world standards, but for basketball, I guess I kind of skewed it. So even in my head right now, some of my closest friends are still pretty tall. So I'll be around them. We take pictures and it, you know, it doesn't look that abnormal. And then I'll go to like ghoulish where we were and I'll, I'll look at all the pictures from ghoulish and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I stand out. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weird freak among, among normal people here. This is very bizarre. So yeah, it's it's weird. I, I don't think of myself as extremely tall, but I guess I kind of I kind of am. And then everybody else that's even taller than me would just be like in the, a different stratosphere, no pun intended, I guess, of a uh, of height. You're very tall for San Antonio. We're we're kind of a short city, I would say. Yes, we we are, and we've had um, I've I've had some experiences where I've walked into the same building where a Spurs player either just was or still is, and especially because we've had some Spurs players who. Um, we're very beloved in the city, like Malik Rose, mm. who um, I think he's six five or six six, which is only a couple inches taller than me. But he played a position that people normally play when they're like six ten. And you're watching on TV, and people don't understand. It's hard to get like a, a good idea of the range of what the height really is. And so I remember going into a store one time, and he was there, and all these kids running up to me, and they're like, "Are you a spur too?" And I was like, "Oh God, like what's going on?" And then I saw him, and I was like, oh, "I I get it. I, I get what's happening because I'm." To them, especially a little kid, they can't really tell at that point. They're like six four, six six, whatever. It all looks the same to us. So, like, they see me come in, and very few people look like me in the city. And uh, they're like, "Oh man, like this. Who else could it be? Why wouldn't he be a, another, another professional basketball player?" So that that kind of thing makes you also realize, like, man, I, I guess I am pretty, pretty tall. So let's talk about your writing process. Are you a plotter, a pantser, a hybrid? Um, a little bit of a hybrid, primarily though, pantser. Um, because okay. if I if I become like a plotter, I'll get so bogged down. And this actually kind of somewhat happened to me. I, I realized with my my latest novel that I I just completed and submitted to my publisher, but I'll get so bogged down in trying to organize things that it will delay my actual writing process. And 
I'll start trying to fit in things that probably don't fit, et cetera, et cetera. So at some point I have to just write and let it organically happen. And then also I discovered that I'm very, even if I did do the plotting, and I'm sure a lot of plotters will like this too, but I'm realizing by myself, I'm, I'm very open to just doing something entirely different in people who I thought were going to be important might die or vice versa. Somebody who I'm like, I was going to kill this person. Now I'm like, actually, I think they're kind of important to the story. I think I'm going to stick, keep you around and we'll figure out what happens from here. And just entire scenarios um, get concocted that I previously wasn't prepared for. So I, I try to be very loose with it anyway, the amount of plotting that I, I even engage in. And I really don't go back and really get into the kind of organizational standpoint until after I do the the first draft. And then I'll go back and take a lot of notes and kind of outline, okay, these are the things I need to address to make sure the story is going to line up properly or that I need to fix that I remembered along the way. And so I'll do a lot more of my kind of organizational stuff during the rewrites. Okay. Um, so something for something like the spite house or the novel you've just completed, um, do you have daily goals, like a 500,000 word aspiration, or is it just whatever you're able to do with the time that you have? I'm a, especially with this last one, I'm, I've wanted to do this for a while. I got super ambitious and I shot for a 2000 words a day. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's, and I mean, some days I hit it and some days I didn't, but it's, it's there to kind of do the old adage of, you know, reach for the stars. And if you fall or shoot for the stars, if you fall, you land on a cloud, whatever, I try to, you know, set a goal. That's if I don't get there, I still feel like, okay, I know I got a thousand in or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to do, um, I actually, if, you know, everything kind of in my head, I've, I've always got stuff swarming in my head, 500 words at a time, I can usually feel pretty confident that I can, I can get through that unless I hit a, a really strong roadblock of, of some kind of plot or something that I'm not certain about. So if I need to just sit down and write 500 words at a time, I feel like I can always do that. So then I, I try to just break it up in chunks throughout the day to make it more digestible because 2000 words, you sit there and think I got to write 2000 words for the day does get overwhelming. But if I'm like, I just got to write 500 words when I wake up in the morning and then take a break, what have you, you know, go just read something, watch something, what have you, come back another 500, have some lunch, come back from lunch, another 500 towards the afternoon to wrap up the day or towards the evening. And it's not always that strict schedule, but I try to get 500 in four times a day. And then it becomes a matter of if something jumps in, then I know I've gotten 500 here, 500 there. I know I've gotten in a thousand at least. Um, and so I am, I was able to successfully implement that with this last uh, book. And I'm going to try to, I'm already going to start trying to working on book three because I've got this idea. And uh, as soon as I'm done with uh, one of the, the, the latest kind of little rewrite that I'm doing, that's a little extra for this latest one, then I'm, I'm going to start trying to employ that. A for book three, and also as it applies to short stories as well. I mean, 2000 words in a day is a lot. If you add it up, you, you can crank out just an enormous volume of text if you actually adhere to that. So I don't have any illusions that I'm actually going to adhere to that. I'm sure I'm going to have some 500 word dates, et cetera. But it'll also help me, I think, maintain the level of productivity that I, I want to maintain because I'm a little older, you know, I'm 43 and my book just came out. So I've got a lot of stories that I haven't told yet and that I want to tell. So I, I do want to have a, a certain level of production. And I mean, I really get a kick out of it. I just, I love it. I'm, like I said, I'm rereading some of the stuff and rewriting it now. And and uh, some of the stuff I've, I've wrote, I'm just really excited to share with the world. I'm excited about this idea 
get so excited about the, the whole concept of writing. So for me, it's, it's never a matter of motivation. It's just usually a matter of, am I in my head too much about something? But otherwise I can, I can typically get a thousand words out in a day if I, if I'm really just kind of letting it flow at minimum in 2000. I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot more than that done um, certain times if I'm really just catching fire. So it just depends. So you got your start with short fiction and I wanted to ask if this is, this is kind of off script a little bit, but just curious, I find it's harder to keep a story like under 4,000 words, like every story idea feels like it wants to be a novel. It, that definitely started happening to me at a certain point. I, you know, I, I got started with short fiction and I, I kind of got into a good rhythm with that. And then um, at a certain point, yeah, the, the it was very hard to, to keep stuff within the, you know, under 5,000, under 4,000 range and stuff at least wants to be a novella, novelette, something, right? I was writing a lot of stuff that turned into 10,000, 12,000 words. And even some of the stuff that has been, I've, I've been fortunate enough to sell recently started off as something longer. And at a certain point, I realized that the only way to get this sold, there just aren't a lot of markets for that in-between zone, especially that 12,000, 15,000 word story. There just aren't a lot of markets for that at all. So I was like, okay, if I, I got to get this at least under 6,000. So like, what do I start shaving? Which is really difficult, especially if you've got something that's like 12,000 words and you're like, how do I cut it in half? Um, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to do that for a couple of stories that sold. But yeah, a lot of stuff wants to drift into some longer territory and you, you just kind of got to corral some of it to a certain degree. And then, then it's the difficulty of, am I, am I giving enough? Am I not giving, you know, if I'm not, am I not giving enough? You know, what, am I giving too much? What, what, what's the sweet spot for that is hard. So I absolutely loved um, the spite house. Like I said, just reading a classic ghost story with the other elements that you, you kind of threw in there. Um, it's the region of the country I'm pretty familiar with, but I learned kind of, um, and, and watching you speak about it. And um, if you haven't, uh, if you're to my audience, if you haven't read it at this point, and you just want to recapture that kind of classic ghost story feel, I recommend you read it. And right now I'm going to ask Johnny to read from the Spite House a passage. I'm kind of stalling so he can get it. If he, okay. Um, a passage for us. Uh, there are a lot, especially ones, you know, kind of dealing with the father-daughter's relationship that I could have picked out, but I was curious to see what was meaningful for Johnny. And after he reads it, I'm going to ask him why he chose that to share with us. Sure. So this is the passage that I've, I've read the most frequently um, anywhere that I've gone to. And uh, yeah, I'll explain why I like it so much why it's my favorite and why I've, I've really gotten a kick out of reading it after I'm done. So just to kind of set the scene for it, um, the lead villain is telling our hero, Eric, or our villain is Eunice. And she's telling the hero, Eric, or our antagonist, or rather protagonist, Eric, um, some of the history of the house in an effort to uh, somewhat keep him from fleeing the scene after he's already encountered some dangerous or threatening elements within the house. And this is her trying to open up to him, even though she's talking about something dangerous in the house, is her trying to say, well, I'm, I'm now willing to be more um, confessional to you about some of the house's history, so hopefully you'll trust me more. So this is her speaking primarily in this scenario. 
Already at that time, the spite house was thought to be haunted. Even people outside of Degner knew it. The rumor went beyond the house having ghosts. They said it would make you disappear if you went inside. How they came to that, I have no idea. Obviously, you've been in and out, so you know that that much is a lie. But it was fresh in everybody's minds because its owner died just a year earlier. The story going around was that after he'd been buried, some people saw him walking down the road going back to the house, looking grim about it, like he didn't want to, but had no choice. Eunice saw Eric stiffen at this and added, Even I never believed that one, and I've known spirits are real for most of my life. Anyway, the men who came here to deface the monument were taken to the house and told they could either spend one night there or several at the jailhouse. But once they made their decision, they were stuck with it. They all made the mistake of choosing the spite house. Not two hours went by before the first of them tried to come out. They didn't try to sneak out, not that you could. There was no way in or out but the front door, or breaking through a window, I suppose. Either way, it would be obvious. Those men tried to walk out the front right past the sheriffs and the deputies and others parked outside. From what I've heard, after our folks raised their guns at them, it really looked for a moment like those men would rather, rather be shot than forced back inside. They kept saying that they wouldn't go back in, that the place was wrong, that they heard two children laughing and telling them that the house was going to eat them, she thought, but did not share. They apologized and begged to go to the jailhouse as long as they didn't have to go back inside. It took the sheriff threatening to shoot their legs out and drag them back in for them to go in on their own, crying the entire time. These were all grown men. They ended up staying the whole night, and all of them came out in the morning. None of them disappeared after all. But later, after they got home, one of them, a man named Clyde, kept talking to his family and even his preacher about how he had to go back inside because he left something in the house. They didn't know what to make of it at first and just told him that it couldn't be that important. He still had his wedding ring, his father's watch, the most important things that he'd had on him at the time. What could he have left behind that could make him think he needed to go back? He couldn't tell them, or would it? He just kept saying he had to go until one day his wife and children woke up and he couldn't find them and he couldn't find him. His wife and children woke up and couldn't find him in their house and didn't see his truck out front. Since he talked about it so much, the spite house was the first place they asked the authorities to go look for him. Sure enough, his truck was parked right by it, but they searched that house, the valley, and everything nearby and found no trace of him. The audience is clapping. <laughs> I, I did get a great, the first time I, I picked that passage to read, I got a great response. It was in uh, North Carolina at uh, the, uh, uh, oh gosh, the Movable Feast book event that they have up there um, through their bookstore, which the, the name is escaping me right now. But if I remember it later, I'll give them a shout out because I love that event. And uh, you, they suggested only read something that was two minutes long. So trying to find the right thing. And then I, I just realized that that packs so much into that moment. And uh, I got a great response out of that that time. And I, that's when I realized, oh, man, I might might be on some onto something here with that passage. And it also happens to be probably my favorite little moment in the book. So that, that helps. One of my favorites, at least. Okay. I guess that answers the question. You know, the next question was, why is it your favorite? And it kind of encompasses a lot. Yeah, it, encom it encompasses a lot. It, um, I mean, like I said, I grew up on really gravitating to ghost lore. So that her relating that story that just sounds like something I would have heard. I grew up in Mississippi that that to me felt and sounds like something 
you might have heard about a house in Mississippi. Oh, that place is so haunted that somebody went in on a dare and then they tried to come out and like, you know, then they went back inside or whatever. But later on, after they got out of the house, th there was a, a story in one of the scary stories to tell in the dark books as well, which I loved growing up. And it was similarly going to a haunted house, something happens inside, but then you get out. But then later on, the house is still calling to you. And there was kind of this idea of that that's that's present there and her relating that story. And then there's also these things where it, it reveals certain aspects of, of Eunice. She's still withholding information. You start to get the first real sense of how evil she's capable of being while she's looking to preserve, you know, herself. Um, and so there, there are a lot of different components associated with that there are uh there's a another great ghost story that i loved when i was a kid that involved a man just walking on the road after his burial and so that's present at the beginning after that and or in that and i always really loved that and that that's something i was happy to give a shout out to in the book and so it incorporates all these different things and matches up all these things i grew up loving so that's a major reason why that's my favorite favorite passage your first professional or pro rate sale wasn't that long ago, um, yeah. just a handful of years. And now you have an agent and the spite house is huge. So um, outside of everybody in San Antonio asking for you to blurb your book, including me, what has changed for you professionally since announcing the spite house and since releasing it? Man, great question. I mean, I, I've I've devoted myself. I've become a full time author, um, which risky, obviously, but I've got a good support system that that helps out with uh, some of that. Um, I mean, I think largely it's it's. I, I don't want to obviously shortchange my my support system, my spouse, and and everybody else in my family that helps out. Uh, but I'm also very cognizant that other people have that too and don't have the luxury of also. Um, going full time. And even as somebody who lives in San Antonio, I know that this is not necessarily universal as well, you know, with you living in San Antonio as well. But I do think that part of why I'm able to do that as well is uh, the cost of living here is, uh, comparatively speaking, very affordable. Um, and so I was able to make that decision. And and uh, that's obviously the, the biggest change. Uh, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm getting um, requests for for blurbs which is a lot of fun this is one of the perks of being an author i didn't realize you know it, it was seven last time we spoke was it it, it it was i've got a couple gosh i i owe celso his i still haven't written it to him yet i've been trying to see i'm in my head too much i'm trying to figure out a way to say what i want to say about his um his next one coming up which is fantastic i love it and i, I i've just got to i got to get it to him and i got to do that in a hurry because he needs it by june from my understanding of it i believe so yeah there, there's that um, yeah, there, there were several already, um, which is great. I'm, I'm getting, again, I'm getting free books. This is like my, my dream, you know, <laughs> not only am I writing books, I'm getting, I'm getting people sending me books. And, um, so there, there's that aspect of it as well. Um, and yeah, you know, you get people reaching out to you to, to say, Hey, you, I'm putting together an anthology. Can you put a, a short story? Um, can you write a short story? Do you have something that, that could fit this theme? And so um, I'm, I'm getting some uh, some people that have, have have approached me about that a few different times, and I've been fortunate enough to be in um, some really good ones. Uh, the Obsolescence Anthology that has some really great names attached to it um, just came out in May, I believe. 
um, in this very month and of a, of a story there. And that was a great opportunity for me to, to write something that had been in my mind um, when Alan was with shortwave media, shortwave media reached out to me about that. I'd had the story in my head that ended up being in, in that anthology um, for quite some time. I just hadn't gotten around to writing it. And so then when I agreed to it, I thought, okay, you know what, this gives me a, a chance to stop kind of setting this one aside and just devote myself to it. And I'm extraordinarily happy with how it came out. So, you know, all those things, all these opportunities come up. It's been, it's been awesome. And I asked this of Celso yesterday, you're San Antonio based. I think I've heard you speak about this before at some of the events, um, but it does feel like San Antonio, <clears throat> pardon me, is having a moment in horror. Um, this is also going to be a repeat of something I said yesterday, but that's okay. It's my show. <laughs> I think in the past 12 months, there have been three San Antonio authors in a Nightworms box, which um, I can't think of another city, maybe outside of like one of the huge ones where <laughs> they produce three um, authors in Nightworms. So we have this great community between us and Austin, just in kind of the Southern Hill Country region. What do you think it is about San Antonio this region in general that lends itself to horror. I think we have a lot of great horror stories here and a lot of them haven't really been tapped between, like you said, that, that region in between San Antonio and Austin and then surrounding areas to get the Hill country. My story set, um, you know, Celso makes outstanding use of the San Antonio region within his story. And it's, if I recall, like San Antonio is one of the most haunted uh, cities, at least in Texas, if not throughout the South, allegedly, you know, whether you believe in ghosts or not, that, that just gives you a lot of fertile territory for uh, ghosts, various monsters, uh, you know, Converse, Texas, uh, a suburb of San Antonio allegedly has a werewolf. I remember reading about that or hearing about that ages ago. That was right around the time when the Blair Witch came out. So I remember wanting to make my, I was like, we could do the Converse werewolf telling my buddy we just need a camera man we could you know like these guys can do that with this blair witch thing we can do the converse werewolf we can go out there never did it of course but i mean like that's been around forever and now i, I i've gone online to be like and was i making that up no like that's an actual thing and you can read about the legend of the converse werewolf and all these other crazy interesting terrifying things horror wise that exist in san antonio that i'm sure exist in other places but i do feel like we have an abundance of it in san antonio and a lot of great um frightening history um here interesting history the little you know tidbits that you can add i i've always liked the number four so i try to incorporate that you know in some weird way in a lot of my works and my books and room 1414 i believe if i'm not mistaken if i'm not making that up um the the legendary blues music musician robert johnson who basically is kind of the, the godfather of the blues and allegedly you know not really, but, you know, the, this uh, lore goes that he sold his soul to the devil and wrote Hellhound on my trail about all that. And, you know, it's not really what it's about, but it's it makes for good horror stories. But he re recorded his only album, basically, here in San Antonio in a hotel in room 1414 and all these cool things. Right? And you can incorporate all this now then if you want to. And like that room is supposed to be, you know, like people say, maybe, maybe it's haunted then. Maybe it's kind of carrying some of the curse. All these cool little tidbits and and really important things and really, you know, kind of small time underground things that all exist in this area and the surrounding area that are, are 
unexplored not just by other people but even i think san antonians there's so much about the area that i i'm still learning about and finding out new things um and i feel like we were it just is a maybe it's just a coincidence but maybe it's also just overdue to to kind of be able to share some of this history and uh especially in relation to horror some of the spooky vibes that the city just kind of carries naturally I lived in Converse in the mid '90s. I had no idea there was a werewolf there. Converse werewolf. If you look it up, it's supposed to date back to the, uh, I think it's like the 1890s or something like that. There's a story about a man sending out his son to do some kind of chore. The kid claims that he saw something her- horrible out there. The dad comes back, tells the dad. The dad's like, you know, you're lying. You just don't want to do your work. You're lazy. Then kid goes out, doesn't come back. The dad goes looking for him, finds him being mauled by a bipedal wolf-like animal. And uh, if I, I think from there you read different you know versions of it. It's kind of like the donkey lady, right? Like there's different histories and things like that. For anybody who doesn't know, the donkey lady is another San Antonio legend. We have Donkey Lady Bridge, an actual bridge named after that. Um, and there's also so much culture here too, right? Like that, you know, like, and, in, in, you know, I mentioned earlier cultural appropriation. So there, you, you need the right voices for the right story and everybody, you know, just to write things well and respectfully, um, I know there's a lot of conversation about who's allowed to write what. The, my thoughts on that are very complex. But typically, my, my kind of go-to is if if you write it well and you do it respectfully, nobody is upset about it. it. It's always when you screw it up that people get upset. And people tend to screw it up a lot because that you're not actually – that's true cultural appropriation. You're not trying to actually do justice by it. You're just – uh, this seems cool. I'm going to steal it. I don't actually want to do the research and, and look into it and then and, and find the best way to convey this information. I just kind of want to be a tourist passing through this. If you if you do it well, you're going to have shown the love and the energy that necessarily needs to go into it. And that's going to, you know, shine through. And then those people don't typically get called out. There's not a lot of people that get called out for, for that when it's something that's actually done well and done properly. But anyway, um, but we have, you know, things like that. I've heard of from friends and and um, parents of friends and stuff like the Lechusa um, and all these other kind of wonderful creatures and, and wonderful ideas of what um, can happen in the spirit world here in San Antonio as well. So I think all those things kind of converge to, to help our, our city have a, a lot of fertile territory, like I said, for horror. Well, people weren't paying attention before. I hope they're paying attention now. Yeah. It- it is time for rapid fire. So short responses to these questions. What advice do you have for fledgling writers? Read less writing advice, read more writing. Best writing advice you've received, if, if that's different than what you just told me. Uh, don't self-reject. Are ghosts real? Magnostic. I don't know. Marvel or DC and why? Marvel because that's what all my friends and my older brothers and my older cousin grew up reading. So I was just surrounded by Marvel, but I will make time for Batman all the time. What advice do you have for me specifically about becoming a model? Um, uh, keep smiling. Great smile. Keep smiling. The next book is not a sequel, but you do have another novel. What information, if any, can you share with us about that? Uh, it's tentatively titled Devils Kill Devils. My editor said she really liked that title. 
So I'm hoping that we we stick with that as well. Um, as you mentioned, it is completed. It's also set in San Antonio. It's uh, primarily set in San Antonio. It also does uh, drift into the to the hill country, though, and also even makes a an important stop in Eagle Pass. Speaking of other places that you know, again, underexplored places in in Texas and just our general region, uh, Eagle Pass and the casino out there and the, the stretch of land um, that's pretty empty on that drive. Um, and some just really interesting, I hope, takes on some uh, classic kind of evil archetypes in horror. And I'm I'm really I'm ex- extraordinarily excited about it. I think I've written a tunnel scene, um, a tunnel attack that is. I was just rereading it earlier, and I'm I'm really happy with it. So I hope the rest of the world is happy with it because I I feel like it's a a really good scary. Um, sequence there so hopefully everybody else is scared by it if nothing else i know that it, it freaked me out so that is an awesome title any guess is this a 24 release are we thinking it's hopefully yes uh fall of of 2024 okay that is what we're currently targeting and and hopefully fingers crossed we we are able to stick to that schedule i'll have a book out then if you want to bring me along when you're doing your book launch let's let's, let's let's co tour i'd love it that we there's there should be more like of that kind of collaborative stuff why wouldn't there be like double tours for uh you know like two authors on you know going to the same general areas we all like to commune anyway it's such a lonely experience anytime we get to talk to one another it's always a blast so yeah I'm, I'm totally down with that i'm really intrigued by your answer to this question what is your dog-eared book literal or figurative what is the book that you've come back to more than any other and why? I'm going to go with something pretty recent here, but I've gone back to it several times since it came out. Um, Zen E. Rockland's Flowers for the Sea. Um, and it, I'm just really captivated over and over again by the lead character who is very complex in their emotions. And she is wronged and yet at the same time has this anger that you can empathize with in terms of its righteousness but at the same time you're, you're dreading it every time i read it i know where things are going i mean it's a horror story so i don't think i'm spoiling much by saying that horrible things happen um and every time i read it i just part of me that's rooting for her to find peace for her own sake but also part of me that's rooting for her to just give in to the to the desire for vengeance and then i'm bouncing between those things and i'm conflicted and also the writing is extraordinary uh, Zenny Rockland's a terrific writer. Um, and so th- that's why I just keep, I've gone back to that book several different times. Um, and it, it's, I think it was a 2019 release, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it's, it's within the last five years, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in that range. And yet it's it's the book that I've read and reread the most easily. Um, I mean, it was one that I immediately reread right after I finished it the first time. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a shorter book, but gosh, man, I, I really love it. And I, I can't stop going back to it. Thank you, Johnny, for indulging this little experiment of mine. And I want to reiterate to any active HWA members, because there are some rules about how we can advertise ourselves, that The Spite House is Johnny Compton's first novel. So remember that later this year. All right. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks, Alfie.
Spite House is a ghost story, and it's a darn good one. As I discussed with Johnny though, it's the investment in this family and these characters that makes it great. Johnny has a story in the Obsolescence Anthology out this month, as well as the most recent episode of the Nightlight Podcast. Johnny also has his own podcast, Healthy Fears, and the episode titled Depths of Hatred explores his choice for a dog-eared book, Zen E. Rockland's Flowers for the Sea. Thank you again to Johnny, and thanks to our sponsor, Short by Comparison.